Due to the sensitive nature of today's episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence and radiation contamination. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On March 11, 2011, 54-year-old Atsufumi Yoshizawa was working as an engineer at the Fukushima Daiichi power plant next to Okuma, Japan. As he finished up his shift at about 2.46 p.m., he felt a violent tremble that jerked him onto the floor. He stood in a hallway near the plant's main control room. Yoshizawa looked up and saw the walls sway. Seconds later, ceiling panels fell to the ground. In the corner of his eye, Yoshizawa spotted a sturdy desk. He crawled toward it and took cover. For nearly six minutes, he and his colleagues at the power plant endured the most powerful earthquake to hit the region since researchers began keeping seismographic records in the late 19th century. After the shaking ended, Yoshizawa rushed to a secure room where senior staff gathered to discuss the emergency plan. They had no idea that the earthquake was the least of their worries. The quake had triggered a tsunami heading right toward them, several massive waves that would destroy the nuclear power plant. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And this is They Knew, a four-part special series presented by Conspiracy Theories. When a tragedy occurs, we often find ourselves asking, how could this happen? Oftentimes, the events were totally random. There's no way anyone could have foreseen what would happen. But other disasters are the result of negligence and corruption. In this episode, we'll discuss one of the world's worst nuclear catastrophes, the 2011 Fukushima Daiichi power plant disaster. The facility cut corners and ignored repairs from the 1970s until the 2000s. They knew that could be dangerous, but continued to ignore protocol until a powerful earthquake and tsunami plunged the plant into ruin. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests... Don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened, I'm okay, other people have it worse, it doesn't matter much. 
and through therapy was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd started to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. To fully grasp the sorrow of the Fukushima nuclear disaster, you need to understand the notion of yurei, or faint spirits. Yurei are much like the Western concept of ghosts who have unfinished business. The specters are unable to transcend to a peaceful afterlife. Some of these yurei and other supernatural beings especially inhabit one part of Japan, its northeast region. The area is known for its remoteness, harsh winters, and haunted history. Most modern Japanese ghost sightings have been born out of tragic events like World War II. In August of 1945, the U.S. Army dropped two nuclear bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The attacks killed over 200,000 civilians, with thousands more to die from nuclear radiation in the months and years to follow. In the aftermath, Stories circulated about the yurei of the blast's deceased wandering in the remains. The ghosts of World War II haunted Japan several other ways, too. The nation's lack of natural resources and foreign dependence on oil arguably led to their defeat. As a result, the country searched for an energy source that allowed for more independence and a return to prosperity. In the late 1940s and 1950s, Japan's Ministry of International Trade and Industry, or MITI, had an idea. Nuclear power plants. But that would be easier said than done. With the Hiroshima and Nagasaki attacks fresh in their minds, the public disapproved of anything nuclear. So in the 1950s, the country continued with an older source of energy, coal. At one point, Japan had 130 coal mines, including Fukushima's own Joban coal field. The 62-mile mine supplied energy for Japan's largest city, Tokyo, located 118 miles southwest. And powering Tokyo helped Fukushima's economy flourish. The Joban coal field became one of the prefecture's main employers, hiring up to 30,000 people. 
It was a more prestigious distinction than one of Fukushima's other claims to fame as a grower of delicious peaches and pears, for which it was nicknamed the Fruit Kingdom. As coal bolstered Fukushima's economy, the nonviolent use of atomic power was on the rise. In December of 1953, U.S. President Dwight D. Eisenhower started the Atoms for Peace program. The initiative encouraged the amicable use of nuclear energy in other countries, especially Japan. In September of 1954, a member of the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission said that giving Japan nuclear power would be a dramatic and Christian gesture to make amends for bombing Hiroshima and Nagasaki. In other words, the U.S. wanted to make amends with Japan for bombing two major cities with more nuclear power. The Japanese public was vehemently against it, so the U.S. State Department flooded the country's radio, TV, and newspapers with pro-nuclear propaganda. Within a year, it worked. The scheme softened the people's aversion to atomic power and helped elect pro-nuclear politicians to Japan's parliament. By the end of 1955, Japan had signed an atomic energy agreement with the U.S., The Japanese government budgeted millions of dollars to develop nuclear power plants across the country. The MITI was heavily involved in the facility's operations. The new power stations created hundreds of new jobs. It was a boom for atomic energy, but that caused the coal industry to face a rapid, irreversible decline. As a result, mines like Fukushima's Joban coal field eventually closed. Without the coal mine, thousands of people lost their jobs. But before long, Fukushima found a solution, opening its own nuclear power plant. In the late 1960s, Fukushima found an interested company, Tokyo Electric Power Company, or TEPCO. It was Japan's largest utility provider and supplied electricity to Tokyo and several prefectures. TEPCO made big plans for Fukushima, ordering not just one nuclear plant, but two. In 1966, construction began on Fukushima's first plant alongside a northeastern coastal town called Okuma. TEPCO picked a 114-foot sea bluff as the facility's location. That height would largely protect the spot from tsunamis, which could be from 10 to over 100 feet high. But from their experience at the time, Okuma rarely saw massive waves and hadn't had a recorded tsunami in at least 300 years. In TEPCO's application to build the site, the company wrote that typhoon storms, earthquakes, and aftershocks were greater threats to the new power plant. Seismic activity in Japan is very common, especially since the country rests on or near four constantly shifting tectonic plates. A nuclear power plant needed to be erected on earthquake-proof ground, which the high sea bluff was not. Officials also realized the cliff's elevation made it hard to deliver equipment to the site. And once installed, necessary hardware like sea pumps would cost more to operate. So TEPCO came up with a plan to save money and safeguard the plant from earthquakes. The company shaved down the seawall by 82 feet, 
revealing a stable bedrock layer. Then the company constructed the building on solid ground, located only 32 feet above sea level. It was a fateful decision that left the power plant vulnerable to tsunamis. Japan was no stranger to the large earthquake-triggered waves. The word tsunami itself comes from Japanese. But TEPCO executives preferred protecting the facility from earthquakes and saving money instead. And the company could get away with this because they were part of a keiretsu. A keiretsu is a specific type of business system, the Japanese equivalent of a corporate conglomerate. Massive keiretsus often received informal direction from MITI, but the agency's authority was limited. And MITI was mainly concerned with the bottom line. The ministry didn't question TEPCO's decision because it potentially improved profits. By 1971, Fukushima Daiichi Reactor No. 1 had begun commercial electrical production. But soon, TEPCO officials would realize the structure had even more weaknesses than they thought. Next, Fukushima Daiichi cuts corners and gets caught. Love. It's been the subject of poems, novels, music, and film. It's also been the driving force behind some of the most horrendous crimes in history. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. Join me for season two of Criminal Couples and meet the lovers who took their passion to perilous lengths. Featuring standout episodes from female criminals, serial killers, solved murders, and crimes of passion, this season of Criminal Couples gets to the heart of what makes two turn to a life of murderous crime. Some couples were set off by revenge or greed. Others were fueled by sex and drugs. All acted in the name of love. Discover the darker side of desire in season two of the Spotify original from Parcast, Criminal Couples. Follow for free and tune in every Monday, only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life, at least not the ones you're thinking of, but they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home, like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. Now, back to the story. In 1971, the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant began energy production. Its operator, TEPCO, took measures to protect the structure from earthquakes, but in the process, those actions made the facility more vulnerable to tsunamis. Unfortunately, 
Like all the stories in this special, TEPCO prioritized efficiency over safety, saving money in the long run. It seems cash drove most decisions when it came to Japan's power plants, including where to build them. Eager to develop his country's new energy source, Japanese Prime Minister Kakue Tanaka created a tax in 1974 for residents who used electricity provided by nuclear power plants. Then the government used those millions of dollars to fund subsidies for the struggling towns that house nuclear power plants. On one hand, the funding helped keep impoverished towns afloat. On the other, the subsidies kept most anti-nuclear protests at bay because the people knew the power plant brought an influx of cash and jobs into their town. Essentially, it bought the residents' approval of nuclear power. Communities that house nuclear plants, like Fukushima, were incentivized for their output, which depended on how many reactors a facility had. By 1979, Fukushima Daiichi boasted six boiling water reactors, or BWRs. Many of the nuclear power plants in the U.S. and abroad used the same BWRs, which were designed by General Electric. The reactors were so large that each was housed in its own respective building where it generated energy. To produce electricity, most BWRs use long rods of uranium-235, a radioactive element. Uranium-235 is highly unstable. Through a controlled process called nuclear fission, its atoms can easily split apart, emitting a large amount of energy. All it needs is a small push to get the reaction started. The energy from the chain reaction is released as heat, which boils water inside the reactor to make steam. Then, the vapor spins turbines that generate electricity. Fukushima Daiichi's six reactors produced a combined 4.6 gigawatts of electricity, enough to illuminate nearly 47,100-watt light bulbs. With this capacity, the plant became one of the most powerful in the world. It was a huge success for Japan. The country went from being weakened by a nuclear attack to successfully harnessing atomic energy. Finally, Japan had found a new avenue to prosperity. So in the following years, Japan went full speed ahead and invested in more power stations, including Fukushima's second plant. And while these facilities were certainly triumphant, they weren't perfect. Nuclear meltdowns are always a huge risk. The BWR reactors needed to have a certain amount of water, no more or less. Not enough water in its core could cause it to dry out and overheat. On the other hand, too much water would create an abundance of steam and pressure inside. Either situation could cause the uranium rods to melt, leading to a nuclear meltdown. In the process, the uranium could release radioactive material into the environment, resulting in radiation poisoning. Fukushima Daiichi had several safety measures in place in case of an earthquake. The structure had a secure room for leadership to retreat to, called the Emergency Resource Center, or ERC. TEPCO also set up the six reactors to automatically shut off in the event of a tremor. If the plant lost electricity, 
It had several backup diesel generators to keep the facility going and keep the uranium rods cool. But despite these precautions, Fukushima Daiichi still had accidents early on. In 1978, reactor number three's fuel rods fell inside the apparatus, causing an uncontrolled chain reaction. It took workers seven and a half hours to fix the issue. Technical data on incidents like these should have been recorded, but the paperwork for the reactor number three accident went missing later on. According to Reuters, it's unclear if the plant workers covered up the mishap intentionally to avoid getting in trouble. Or the documents may have been thrown out for far more routine reasons. At the time, Japan allowed nuclear power plants to discard technical data after 10 years. Either way, it was a preliminary sign that the facility may not have been as safe as TEPCO thought. But while TEPCO may have overlooked Fukushima Daiichi's mistakes, the rest of the world was waking up to nuclear power's hazards. In 1979, the Three Mile Island nuclear power station had a highly publicized partial meltdown near Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Then, in 1986, the Soviet Union's Chernobyl nuclear power plant experienced the world's worst nuclear accident. After those accidents, anti-nuclear movements gained momentum again, including in Japan. The Japanese government publicly declared that mishaps like those could never happen in their country. They claimed that Japan had top-notch technology and maintenance measures that could prevent any type of failure. But in December of 1990, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, an independent safety agency, published an alarming report titled Severe Accident Risks. The study examined power plant safety in the U.S. It found that if diesel generators failed, the lack of electricity would cause the reactor's cooling systems to stop. And those conditions could set the stage for a major disaster. Studies like this one were significant because they pointed out that diesel generators, a common safeguard, may not be as reliable as people thought. Eventually, Japan's own nuclear and industrial safety agency learned about the report, but it's still unclear if TEPCO read the American Bulletin. But soon, TEPCO's own failings became well known to Japan. TEPCO was responsible for having several parts of the reactors inspected regularly. Because General Electric designed the reactors, they also performed inspections. In July of 2000, a GE inspector allegedly informed the Ministry of International Trade and Industry, MITI, about cracks found on Fukushima Daiichi's stainless steel reactor shrouds. But as we mentioned earlier, MITI had limited authority over a Keiretsu subsidiary like TEPCO. Ultimately, TEPCO didn't make the necessary fixes to ensure the safety of the reactors. Since the shrouds themselves don't contain fuel, some power plants don't feel an urgency to replace them, even if it leaves the reactor vulnerable. However, GE disagreed. In March of 2002, GE officials told TEPCO's president, Nobuya Minami, to investigate whether his workers were hiding anything else. 
When the probe concluded, it alleged that TEPCO employees had potentially covered up 29 safety incidents over the past two decades. Finally, TEPCO admitted that it falsified documents. And by September, Minami resigned with an apology. But his departure didn't alleviate the dishonesty within the company. Five years later, in January of 2007, TEPCO admitted to mishandling falsified records involving over 200 incidents at its power plants. At the time, TEPCO operated three, the two Fukushima plants and Kashiwazaki Kariwa, the largest rated nuclear power plant in the world. When the Japanese government questioned TEPCO about the records, the company was defensive. TEPCO claimed that their workers felt pressured to falsify documents because passing inspections without incident was the priority. Yet, officials didn't acknowledge that the push for successful inspections likely came from TEPCO and the government. The government probably hoped to keep its taxpayer-funded subsidies in place without protest from anti-nuclear activists. And TEPCO likely didn't want anything to give protesters the sense that its plants might be unsafe. Later, TEPCO released a report essentially admitting that it wanted to prove Japan's nuclear technology was the safest. While the rest of the world made mistakes with Chernobyl and Three Mile Island, Japan sought to avoid criticism and demonstrate that it was generating nuclear power correctly. Unfortunately, that goal likely influenced the government to overlook TEPCO's mistakes. Authorities didn't make the company change any of its procedures. Japan just had too much invested into nuclear energy's success to admit any type of failure. Nuclear power plants had become symbols of Japan's national pride and prosperity. By 2011, Nuclear facilities produced 30% of Japan's electricity. The country wanted to increase that to more than 50% by 2030. Not to mention, Fukushima Prefecture had collected a total of $3.3 billion from government subsidies since 1974. The area was making more money than ever, thanks to its two nuclear power plants. And that meant Fukushima Daiichi needed to keep running no matter what. But on March 11, 2011, TEPCO's disregard for safety and the truth came to a head. Coming up, Fukushima Daiichi faces a catastrophe. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, back to the story. March 11th, 2011, was an ordinary day at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant as its employees reported to work to keep the reactors functioning. At the time, only reactors 1, 2, and 3 were operational. The other three were down for maintenance. Then, at 2.46 p.m. local time, the violent earthquake struck. For about six minutes, a magnitude 9 earthquake shook northeast Japan, including Fukushima Prefecture. The shaking was strong enough to shatter glass, crack roads, and take down telephone poles around the area. The seismic event was so powerful that it moved Japan's east coast eight feet toward North America and tilted Earth's axis by four inches. But inside the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant, little changed. In fact, everything seemed to be going according to its emergency plan. Reactors 1, 2, and 3 automatically shut off. The plant's generators ran pumps to keep the reactors cool for the next 24 hours, the time needed for the core to power down without a risk of meltdown. Plant leadership retreated to the Emergency Response Center, or ERC. They thought the worst was over and that the nuclear station had survived. Little did they know, the forceful quake originated from tectonic movement in the Pacific Ocean, located around 80 miles off Japan's east coast. Seismic activity in the ocean floor releases a lot of energy. Eventually, that power lifts the water above the sea level and creates a tsunami. No one at Fukushima Daiichi knew that the massive waves, nearly 130 feet high, were heading right for the coast. That is, until the senior managers heard the warnings on TV. Around 3 p.m., a news broadcast said that Fukushima was about to be hit with a 20-foot wave. In the plant's ERC, Superintendent Masao Yoshida worried whether the reactors could handle that much flooding. He ordered the laborers to seek higher ground, but he had no idea just how bad it would become. 35 minutes later, a 50-foot wave slammed into Fukushima Daiichi. In total, the earthquake and tsunami killed nearly 15,900 people, while 2,527 went missing and were presumed deceased. Out of those who survived, over 6,000 individuals were injured. The disaster completely destroyed dozens of towns in northern Japan, Over a million homes were damaged. And to make matters even worse, the tsunami washed away Fukushima Daiichi's emergency cooling measures. Water flooded and damaged the diesel generators, rendering them useless. Most of the backup batteries were destroyed. The plant had no power to run the pumps required to keep the three active reactors cool. 
Even without electricity, nuclear fission kept occurring and produced an uncontrollable amount of heat. It was only a matter of time before the reactors went into meltdown or exploded. At 3.42 p.m., just minutes after the 50-foot wave hit, TEPCO declared a first-level emergency, which meant that an accident happened, but the company still didn't know how bad it was. According to Japanese law, TEPCO needed to inform several government entities and politicians about the plant's status via fax. But there was just one huge problem. The earthquake and tsunami knocked out electricity and phone lines across the region, including at Fukushima Daiichi. Talking to the outside world, let alone government officials, was impossible. Superintendent Masao Yoshida and the plant's workers couldn't get in touch with each other. The facility's paging system was inoperable, and backup batteries for mobile communicators only lasted for an hour. Even if engineers could request external help, it was unlikely to reach them right away. The disaster damaged many roads, and the remaining ones were filled with traffic or water. The workers were on their own for survival, and to make matters worse, the power plant was shrouded in near pitch-black darkness, which meant no one could see anything. Still, the employees tried to improvise with what they had. Luckily, Reactor 3 had some functional batteries left, and the power kept the core cool. However, Yoshida thought Reactors 1 and 2 were likely in trouble. No one could figure out what the water levels were or how much time they had left before they melted down. Throughout the late afternoon and evening, plant employees tried to power the reactors and supply more water to no avail. By 10 p.m., reactor number one was overheating. Uranium rods were melting and radioactive material leaked out. In the following hours, radiation levels rose to unsafe amounts and residents who lived in the area were evacuated. Worst of all, the heat caused the reactor's fuel to release hydrogen gas, which is highly flammable. All it needed was a spark to ignite. Yoshida and his employees spent a tense night attempting to cool down the reactors. The pressure grew more intense as the outside world learned about Fukushima Daiichi's struggles. That evening, officials likely informed Prime Minister Naoto Kan, who declared a nuclear emergency. The next morning, at 7 a.m., Kan flew to Fukushima Daiichi via helicopter to talk to Superintendent Yoshida. But Kan only spent 50 minutes at the plant before he departed. Kan and other Japanese authorities insisted to the public that everything was going to be fine that Fukushima Daiichi workers had everything under control. Yoshida tried to keep it that way, but it was all for naught. That afternoon at 3.36 p.m., the hydrogen gas inside reactor number one exploded. Laborers were shocked as they watched the eruption from the secure emergency response center. When the smoke finally cleared, they saw that the blast had ripped through the reactor building's roof. The structure was mostly destroyed, and five workers were injured. The uranium inside reactor number one was still extremely hot. 
As the radioactive material melted, it contaminated the building with more and more radiation. The workers tried to cool it with fresh water until they ran out. Yoshida's next move was to use ocean water to stabilize the reactor. But there was one big problem. The salt and seawater would destroy the equipment, and the reactor could never be used again. But a meltdown would be far more dangerous. Yoshida felt that ruining the reactor was the best choice. He ordered his employees to inject the reactor with salt water. Later that night, Tepco ordered Yoshida to halt the injection. They likely knew that replacing the reactor would cost them millions, so they still wanted to consider other courses of action. But Yoshida knew there was no other choice, so he came up with a plan to defy the orders. During a call with TEPCO, Yoshida pretended to tell his team to stop the seawater flow, but it was all for show. Covertly, he instructed his workers to ignore the command and keep working. Theoretical physicist Dr. Michu Kaku later said, Yoshida's decision saved northern Japan from becoming uninhabitable due to radiation. Yoshida's quick thinking saved the day for one reactor, but there were still two other reactors at risk. Unfortunately, both reactors went through a similar meltdown, and eventually, the dormant reactor number four experienced its own explosion. After the explosions, radiation levels spiked to record highs around Fukushima Daiichi. Workers weren't allowed in reactor control rooms anymore, or they would be exposed to unsafe amounts of nuclear particles. Even worse, the explosions left a nuclear cloud filled with contaminated debris. It was a startling sight for a country that saw similar smoke from nuclear attacks during World War II. Unfortunately, like those bombings, the cloud meant the entire area was dangerous. By March 15th at 10 p.m., TEPCO evacuated the majority of its employees from Fukushima Daiichi. Out of the roughly 800 employees remaining at the plant that day, around 700 left. Initial reports stated that only 50 remained to keep the reactors cool, including Yoshida. The Western press gave this crew a nickname, the Fukushima 50. In reality, the number of employees inside stood at about 70. Publications and TV news heralded them as heroes, but most of the Fukushima 50 wanted to remain anonymous, fearing the public might blame them for the disaster. For the next several days, they worked with the military to cool the reactors and reduce the radiation. Finally, on March 21st, 10 days after the earthquake, the workers restored electricity to all six reactor buildings. It made working to salvage the facility less of a struggle. For the most part, the disaster seemed to be over, but its legacy haunted Japan for years. In the immediate aftermath, many blamed TEPCO and Prime Minister Khan for the tragedy. As a result, Khan halted Japan's plans for more nuclear power plants and called for extensive tests on existing generators. But it wasn't enough to win back the public's trust. He resigned on August 26, 2011, five months after the disaster. It took another year before TEPCO acknowledged any fault. 
In October of 2012, TEPCO admitted that it should have taken stronger preventative measures at Fukushima Daiichi. According to the New York Times, officials thought admitting their power plants weren't perfect would create another anti-nuclear movement. But the disaster inspired a revolution anyway. Soon after the tragedy, the Japanese people became staunchly anti-nuclear. A poll by Japanese news agencies found that 80% of the public was against nuclear power and no longer trusted the government. Before long, residents had formed an anti-nuclear organization called Sayonara Genpatsu, or Goodbye Nuclear Power Plants. The group held massive rallies, attended by thousands in Tokyo. To them, government and corporate negligence had poisoned Fukushima Prefecture. And soon, scientists confirmed it. Officials found that radiation from the incident contaminated the area's land and water. In the wake of the disaster, many of the prefecture's produce crops, including peaches and pears, needed to be tested for radioactive residue. On top of that, residents and power plant workers are still dealing with health issues. Plant superintendent Masao Yoshida was among the most public cases. In 2013, the 58-year-old died of esophageal cancer. Many quickly pointed to the nuclear incident as the cause, but TEPCO denied that, as did Yoshida. Officials claim that years of heavy smoking likely caused his illness, not radiation exposure. According to the textbook Cancer Medicine, radiation typically causes leukemia between 2 to 10 years after first exposure. Other cancer types may present after 10 to 15 years. Unfortunately, illnesses are expected to slowly develop in Fukushima disaster victims, especially children. In 2013, the World Health Organization published a report on the increased cancer rates for infants in Fukushima Prefecture. It estimated that females exposed to radiation as infants had a 70% increased risk of developing thyroid cancer. As for the facility's workers, over five years later, many of them still refused to reveal their names, but they did allow the media to report on their radiation-caused maladies. One man died of lung cancer, while three other laborers had leukemia and thyroid cancer. Seven years after the disaster, the Japanese government finally acknowledged that the tragedy caused their illnesses. But still, Many plant employees and other victims struggled to receive compensation for several years. It took until 2015 for the Japanese government to provide payments to many of the disaster victims from a $56 billion relief fund. But it wasn't enough. Thousands of evacuees and residents lost their livelihoods and had to leave their homes due to TEPCO's negligence. Five years later, in September of 2020, a Japanese civil court ruled that the government and TEPCO were negligent in a class action suit. The judge ordered the two entities to pay over 3,000 plaintiffs $9.5 million in damages. The verdict confirmed TEPCO's liability and set the stage for even more lawsuits against the company. But the settlement money seemed paltry compared to the terror the victims endured. 
As for the power plant itself, Fukushima Daiichi's reactors faced malfunctions for several years after the disaster. Eventually, in 2021, the company finalized plans to decommission both nuclear generating stations in Fukushima, a process that will take 44 years. And the plant still holds tons of radioactive water. In April of 2021, Japan announced controversial plans to release that water into the ocean beginning in 2023. Government and TEPCO officials claim the water would be treated, and trial releases have shown normal radioactivity levels. But even as Japan has recovered, its people never forgot the tragedy or those who were lost. Many people believe northern Japan and Fukushima are filled with yurei, or faint spirits, of those who died in the tsunami. They perished on that fateful day, their lives tragically cut short by a triple disaster no one saw coming. According to the Netflix series Unsolved Mysteries, one local resident reported giving rides to ghost passengers. In another instance, a woman even claimed to be possessed by deceased individuals from the disaster. These Yurei sightings are likely an expression of grief over those who are lost. But even for those who don't believe in ghosts, it's abundantly clear that the Fukushima Daiichi disaster will haunt Japan for years to come. Unfortunately, Japan isn't the only country to have a recent catastrophe with ongoing effects. The final episode of our special will tackle a continuing case of negligence in the United States. The Pacific Gas and Electric Company's role in the California wildfires. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next time with a final episode in our They Knew special. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Mallory Cara, with writing assistance by Ben Hanani and Kate Gallagher, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Brian Petrus. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. It's been said that love is a many-splendored thing. That is, until it's not. In season two of Criminal Couples, discover true stories of couples who turned their love lives into a life of crime. Lies and deceit are just the beginning. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Criminal Couples. Catch new episodes every Monday, free and only on Spotify. 